You're listening to the Hutton and Callahan Show, a podcast devoted to sports talk and the sports industry, co-hosted by Dylan Hutton and Skylar Callahan, a minor league baseball play-by-play broadcaster and a Sports Illustrated publisher. We've teamed up to combine our passion for college and pro sports with our curiosity toward the media industry as we talk to broadcasters, reporters, and publishers about their careers and approach to telling stories about the games that we all love. Welcome to episode two of the Hutton and Callahan Show, a podcast devoted to sports talk and the sports industry, and we're happy to be joined today by Justin Rock, the play-by-play voice of the Daytona Tortugas. Justin, we're happy to have you on your very first guest. Oh, thank you very much for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Honored. Now, it's not quite been the spring and summer that we were anticipating due to the outbreak of COVID-19. We just wanted to check on you. How have you been holding up through all this? Uh, it's been sort of crazy for, for me personally back here in uh, in New Jersey. I was supposed to go down to Daytona to start the season. Uh, literally the week before, everything sort of stopped. Uh, you know, that Thursday, the NBA came to a halt or whatever day of the week it was at that point. I forget at this point. It's been two months. It feels like it's been eight years. Um, but, you know, when the NBA stopped the next day, got an email from our president saying, hey, you know, stay put for now. And then, of course, you know, later on that day, Major League Baseball announced that their season was being, you know, put on hiatus. And I've sort of stayed put ever since. Um, you know, luckily, I'm all well and good. My dad's all well and good. Uh, uh, my mom's dealt with health issues. She actually tested positive for the virus. Um, never exhibited any symptoms. Ended up going into the hospital for something totally unrelated to that. And uh, should be out of the hospital by this weekend. Uh, and start her road of recovery and rehab and stuff like that. But it's been a, it's been a weird couple of months up here in New Jersey. Uh, there was a stretch of time where I didn't leave my apartment for 26 days. Some of it was mandatory quarantine. Some of it was us going a little bit overboard. Uh, that stuff was from I think April 20, uh, from April 2nd till about April 28th. Uh, I did not step out the other side of the front door of my apartment kind of hold up there well i'm glad to hear that your mom's on the road to recovery it has been a you know i've not really met anyone that's been touched by it personally so you're really the first person i've heard that's had a family member be affected by it. but glad to hear that she's pretty you know she went through without too bad of symptoms and hopefully she gets back to 100 percent. yeah it's you know a weird thing sometimes you know we were, we were wondering whether or not it was like a false positive but then she went back in like three weeks after she had gotten home and tested positive and still tested positive then so she you know they not both of them could have been wrong so it, it's, it's just all very weird and strange but uh you know thankful counting a lot of blessings right now and uh just trying to push forward and take it day by day which i'm sure many of you are so being stuck in the house for that many days how have you tried to stay entertained uh, been a lot of, you know, watching whatever nonsense is on TV, usually, uh, old sports games, trying to find anything that I haven't necessarily seen before. So if any game that happened after like 2010 and it's on like, don't bother. I- I've seen that happen. You know, before we were on here, the, the MSG network in New York was airing, uh, Michael Jordan game against the Knicks from 1986. It was like the early 1986 season in New York City with like Greg Gumbel doing the game like before he was doing like college basketball and college football and all that stuff on uh, CBS. So a lot of that, you know, video games, stuff like that. 
naps. I mean, they're <laughs> the options are are fairly limited right now, but it's been a lot of those things. You know, luckily now that you know we've sort of gotten past our our excursion with it. Uh, you know, there's a park next to our apartment building. Go out, you know, try to go out at least once a day and just walk around and you know get the get the blood flowing and stuff like that. But outside of those things, there's just isn't very much to do around here since. Everything in the New York, New Jersey area is still on uh, on lockdown. Yeah, yeah I know, Justin, the uh, Rutgers, which is you know probably just right up the road for me somewhat, they just uh, announced today that they're moving all ticketing sales for the college football team to online. To me, you know, I know this is a little off track here, but I think to me that kind of sounds like they're expecting still somewhat of a, a season or somewhat of a season where fans are still participating in and that's considered a hot spot in the country right now. Is that something that you see actually going to go through and, and, and happen where we have some sort of normalcy with, with fans at games? I'm erring on the side of cautiousness. I'm not expecting it, quite frankly. Um, I know they're going to try and do everything in their power to do so, but I would be very stunned if Rutgers had on-campus classes in the fall um california i know is like canceled classes for the fall uh, at their universities and they're in a better spot i think i know don't take my word for it i think they're in a better spot now than it is right here in new york new jersey and so i'd be very surprised if they had fans in the in the stands at you know stadiums if there was a college football season in the fall and there was no students on the actual campus taking classes so that'd be very – I'm not sold on that actually happening, but I guess from Rutgers' point of view is trying to, you know, get sort of that same cautious optimism. Hey, we'll sell these tickets, and, you know, if for, you know, in God willing something great happens and they're able to happen and to have a season and have fans, you know, at their stadiums, then they're ahead of the game. And if not, you know, they're just going to have to deal with the – pain in the neck of refunding people their money yeah i agree and i'm going to go back to your previous point about watching things i think i've been hitting the highlights so like i've been going back to games that i remember <laughs> watching where my teams have won which is rare so i get through those in a few days <laughs> but kind of ran out of them at this point See, my minute. problem is i root for most most of my teams outside of growing up predominantly a yankee fan all the t- all the games my teams won were like when i was either an infant or not alive so, like, any Knicks game I want to watch, like, anything after 2000 is garbage. Yeah. Like, <laughs> no one airs it. There's no Jets games on anywhere. The only Jets games that are on are the Jets losing. So, like, that, that's not even an option. And, like, I think they've aired, like, the same five Yankees games between Yes and, like, MLB Network and ESPN. Yeah, there's so a like Mariners. Games or some are just teams totally unrelated. Yeah, they've got a Mariners Yankees game from like the mid '90s that they've been wearing out. Where Randy Johnson comes in relief. I've watched that game like three times and still haven't finished. That was it. probably Game Five of the '95 ALDS. That was it. And Edgar Martinez has the walk-off uh, double off uh, Jack McDonald because they pulled uh, Mariano Rivera too early in that ball game before anyone knew who Mariano Rivera was. Yep. Yeah, Safe to say that game has not been on. Uh, yes. Our airwaves. I think a lot of people in our uh, neck of the woods still haven't gotten over that one. So, yeah, maybe <laughs> even though they, they won the World Series the next year. But to say all the details you have from it, it really doesn't hurt <laughs> you, right? To to have that. But Justin, we're glad to have you on. Uh, 
just to give everybody an idea of what all you do, voice of the Daytona Tortugas, Class A Advanced Reds affiliate in the Florida State League. You do play-by-play for Army Athletics up there at West Point. And then you formerly, you've been in the Appy League with the Johnson City Cardinals, the Greenville Reds. That's where we became acquainted. Tennessee mm-hmm. Smokies, you've done a stint there. You have actually also have some BA experience, I believe is what you told me before. And you're a graduate yeah. from Penn State University in 2014. So we're going to talk to you about a little bit of everything, but... First of all, just your path in the industry, what got you into broadcasting? What was the moment where you realized, because everybody has that moment where you're like, this is something that I enjoy doing and I want to try to make a career out of it. The story goes for me is that when I was probably like somewhere around the 10, 12 area neighborhood, uh, you know, my dad sort of started beating into my head. Look, you're not going to be the next Derek Jeter, you know. The five, the five, eight Jewish kid from, you know, suburbs, New Jersey doesn't uh, become major league uh, shortstop or starting shooting guard for the Knicks. So, you know, <laughs> I figured if I wasn't going to be the, uh, you know, be a player, get paid to play, I might as well get paid to watch. And, you know, like most kids started calling, you know, the video games I was playing in my basement. And, you know, when I was a high school uh, student, uh, was like one of the last kids cut from our high school baseball team, the freshman team, uh, you know, the JV team my sophomore year and figured, you know, that junior year and wasn't worth trying out again. Uh, the head coach was my physics teacher and just, you know, sent him an email, talked to him, was like, hey, I want to be involved one way or another. You know, I'm not going to bother trying out again. It's just not not worth it at this point. You know, you've got your guys. And you know, he gave me a list and one of them was being the PA announcer. And that was sort of the first gig I had as a, as a broadcaster in public and uh, sort of blossomed from there, went to Penn State uh, and, you know, made connections. And that led me to, you know, doing games on the Cape and ultimately, you know, working professionally in minor league baseball and beyond. Those who don't know what Happy Valley is like, what's what's something that you can can tell people that have never been to a game in Happy Valley? The best way to describe it, so I'm from an area that college football is not a big deal. People don't care. Like, there's a story I heard, like, Le'Veon Bell, like, someone went up to him, you know, and mentioned something about Michigan State, and it's like, man, nobody talks about college football. Here's the first time (laughs) someone said something. And, you know, that's sort of how I grew up, you know, watch college football on TV on Saturdays, but, you know, Rutgers was more or less relevant for most of my childhood and there aren't really any local New York teams in the area. So when I went to college, my first college football game was the first game my freshman year. And my dad was, you know, in his fifties, whatever, he'd never been to a college football game in his life either until that October he came up for the only night game we had our freshman year was Penn State, Michigan. It was a Saturday night game on ABC. And it was just like one of these moments and you're like, this is completely different than any NFL atmosphere you've ever been to. You know, and it, it's it's an amazing atmosphere there on, you know, on Saturdays in Happy Valley. You know, I, I think it becomes like the third uh, biggest uh, city in the state of uh, Pennsylvania behind Philly and Pittsburgh <laughs> on, uh, on Saturdays. And they load up 110,000 people into Beaver Stadium, but just just the atmosphere on game days, tailgating, you know, it was just uh, it was an amazing experience, uh, an amazing just atmosphere, uh, not just for uh, a football game, but for you know, really just a college student 
as a whole. It was a great, uh, great experience, and uh, you know, wouldn't have changed it for the world. It was awesome. I know I've talked to some App State people who made the trip up there a couple of years ago in that overtime game. It was a great game, yep. but uh, they said it was something to behold. Yeah, no, it was. Uh, you know, it's a special place when they fill it up there, and uh, I remember. They actually aired the game a couple of days ago on the Big Ten Network, the Penn State-Michigan game, uh, four-overtime game back in, in 2012. Uh, and Allen Robinson makes a crazy catch on the far side of the field late in the game. And I was in the press box producing the game for student radio. And I still remember, you know, the, you could feel the booth shaking, you know. And this was a year – this is the first year Penn State had the uh, bowl ban, I'm pretty sure. And so, like, there was – or actually, no, I stand corrected. It was the second year because Hackenberg was the quarterback. But either way, they, they still weren't eligible to go. They, the game meant necessarily, essentially nothing. And the place was still, you know, you know, up for grabs like that. So that's the kind of, you know, atmosphere it was there and kind of special place, you know, it is on football Saturdays. Yeah, it's something to keep the energy up when you're dealing with a bowl ban because the same things happen at Ole Miss and there's no one in the stadium now. Of course, they have a real – you know, we've got the tailgating scene where nobody really gives a crap about the games, evidently. But uh, it's totally different. I think that'll change, though. That'll yeah, change. You got to win a few games, right? But let's talk about just sports-wise with minor league baseball. Did you feel like minor league baseball was the path you wanted to take to sports broadcasting, being someone who, you know, has done things both in in the college game and in minors? Uh, it was definitely something I wanted to explore when I was in college. Uh, it was the best route I knew to get to uh, what I wanted to do professionally. Um, and it all really starts with a guy by the name of Dave Walkovic that did a state college spikes short season team. They were an affiliate of uh, pirates still at the time of my sophomore year at Penn state. And I do a game with Dave and, you know, for student radio or whatever. And I knew he had worked in the Cape league the year before uh, asked him, he got me connected with somebody, ended up, you know, working in the Cape League for two years. And then, you know, as I was ending my college career, I was a senior and he, you know, was looking for interns, whatever. And actually because of him, I had my first job in minor league baseball working for the Brevard County Manatees back in the summer of 2014. So that was sort of the way I knew best to get into the industry professionally and sort of the way I've uh, stayed the course ever since. Baseball, the sport you always imagined being in, or is this, or football, basketball, or just anything that you could get into? Uh, I was basically looking any way I can get in. You know, if it was basketball, baseball, football, whatever, you know, whatever they were offering me to do, I was going to be willing to do. And, you know, baseball was the first opportunity and, you know, ended up meeting the right person, got me connected to somebody at West Point that led me to a basketball job that, you know, uh, following winter after my first season with the Smokies in 2015. And, you know, I've been able to do a whole bunch of different sports at West Point over the course of the last couple of years. So, yeah, it was sort of, it was, it was a great entry point. And, you know, just broadcasting baseball is so much different than any other sport. So there's just there's something unique about it and, and the way that, you know, the game is portrayed to the audience at home that's always also kept me sort of in that minor league baseball mindset. Baseball definitely is the uh, storytelling outlet compared to, you know, how basketball, we're jumping back yeah. and forth. It's very much action-packed. And in football, you feel like you have all the time in the world, but you really don't once that ball's kicked off. But, Justin, I guess just to talk a little bit more about your rise 
when was it that you really had the confidence to go out and try to move? Because you've moved a lot more than any broadcast for Happy League broadcasters. At what point did you kind of accept that this is a career field where you're going to have to be less planted to one location? Uh, really, sort of when I was in college, you know, it was portrayed to me, and it was very clear that that was going to be the case. You know, where if you know you wanted to be a broadcaster and you really wanted to have an opportunity, you were going to have to travel and you're going to have to go to places that you you know weren't expected to go and places that weren't big cities and places out of your comfort zone. And you know, I was ready for that. You know, jobs are wherever they are. You know, you can't really sort of pick and choose. You know, you're not going to go straight from college. You know, more often than not to a major job or a major network or a major market. So I was ready, you know, to go wherever it was. And look, very happy for the experiences I had. But, you know, I was ready for that straight out of college. That Like I knew that, you know, I was ready to go wherever it was. And, you know, it just so happened that I never really sort of landed in a place where I was going to be, you know, there for a set period of time. Other people had that coming out of college or after their first job in minor league baseball. And just for whatever reason, it never worked out for me that way. So I was just, you know, ping-ponging left and right. And this was going to be the first time since my two years interning with the Smokies that I was going to be in the same place for back-to-back years. And obviously uh, other things have uh, thrown a curveball into the 2020 season. It just wasn't meant to be, evidently, for for you to be in the same spot. (laughs) Hopefully maybe we'll get a little bit of a season in. But, you know, you're talking about – you were talking about minor league jobs being basically the way up in this industry. We're about to have some cuts to the minor leagues. Uh, what advice would you have for any broadcaster trying to come up? How do you feel like we're going to, as an industry, be able to cope with the loss of all these teams? I mean, there's still going to be a ton of broadcasting jobs. Um, you know, I think there's going to be even more of an emphasis on every team uh, that will be st- still in minor league baseball having a broadcast and having – uh, MILB TV and, and things of that nature. Uh, that's just assumption. I have no inside information on that. So don't go out there quoting, <laughs> quoting me. This is just, you know, based on from what I've seen from sort of an outside perspective looking in throughout all of this. So I think that's going to be a big factor um, and sort of, you know, just the mindset of you got to take whatever job comes to you, you know, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, working for, you know, a, a smaller team or doing something for an independent league team or summer ball uh, for, you know, a college league, you know, it, it's so early to tell what, you know, who knows what the landscape's going to look like for pro and amateur sports, you know, even a year from now, let alone, you know, if and when this, you know, MILB contraction plan uh, comes into play. So it, it's, it's really tough to tell what, will be available what's going to be the landscape for everything but you know some people are going to have to make some tough decisions about what they want to do with their careers and how much they want to pursue it because you know people already had to make that tough decision beforehand and now for some people the decision is going to be made for them yeah unfortunately at least at least that's the way it seems right now but obviously none of this is set in stone this is all just you know still speculation and we're still waiting to hear anything you know we really, we really don't know what they're going to do between uh, the MILB and MLB. 
Yeah, you're right. We don't have an agreement yet, but it seems like things are leaning in the direction that there will be some cuts made, especially with the draft being cut down to five rounds. But like we said, you just never know. It's not like it's something that can't be changed a little later on down the road. But uh, as far as getting into the industry, some good tips there. And I liked what you said about being able to do everything that's asked of you because it's very easy. And you know what it's like in the in these smaller leagues and these lower levels you've got to wear more hats than just the broadcaster yeah i mean that was one of the best things for me the first job i worked in minor league baseball i was working for brevard county and although my job was to be the broadcast media relations assistant my job entailed much more than just broadcasting media relations i had to be the mascot sometimes i had to sell you know ticket plans i had to you know help you know coordinate some theme nights that we had you know, I was at, you know, all the meetings and stuff like that and really learned, you know, sort of how minor league baseball operated on a level beyond just, you know, portraying the game to fans and, you know, dealing with players and stuff of that nature. So because of that, I've, you know, really been able to at least be able to know how I can help other departments for teams, whether it be, you know, you know, making sure advertisements are getting taken care of you know, making sure the website looks good, you know, all these different things that are not what you necessarily would expect when you're thinking, okay, I'm going to be the broadcaster for a professional baseball team, but there are important things that sometimes you learn on the job, sometimes you learn ahead of time, but the best advice I was given was just say yes, go on and continue and just keep learning, and that was, you know, the great experience at Brevard was I learned a lot from doing a lot of different things. And I think that's helped me be able to make myself a little bit more marketable and at least be able to understand where other people I'll be working with are coming from when it comes to different aspects of their job. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, when you're in the minor league ranks, you're going to bounce around from city to city and organization to organization. So you really have to do your homework and your research on these guys that you're calling to games for. And you may be moving from either, you know, class advanced A, maybe up to double A, and you have to learn a whole new league, not just your team's roster, but you may have to learn a whole new realm of rosters. So how much emphasis do you put into doing your research and knowing the players, their backgrounds, where they're from, their stats? Like how much do you put into that um, before the season starts compared to once you're in the season? Uh, before the season, it's really hard because you really don't know. You don't have set rosters. You can make some speculation on how things will go just based on looking at stats and numbers and what like and whatnot. But if you, especially if you're working in rookie ball, you're not going to know or have any idea until the draft is completed. So if you don't, you know, so that factors. So the two summers I worked in Greenville and Johnson City, it's June 1st and you still have zero idea of what your roster is going to look like. You have some speculation of maybe some lower level guys that were, you know, younger guys that were drafted or just signed. But outside of that, you know, you're not really going to know. For, you know, Daytona going into last year, you had some idea, okay, these were the guys that really stood out for their low A team in Dayton last year. You know, here are some guys that, you know, had some not so amazing numbers for the team last year, could be back. So you have some ideas, but I try not to delve too much into the individual preparation for players before the season starts solely based on the fact of I could, you know, make all these things for 40 players and five of them are actually playing for you that season 
And so 35 of the 40 are a waste of time for that season. And that could have been spent towards, you know, helping the team in other facets, getting, you know, something else prepared for our broadcast. So once I get a better idea of what our roster is going to look like, then I'll start delving more into the research because I'm doing that anyway for game notes on a day-by-day basis. So a lot of it sort of goes hand in hand of, yeah, I'm waiting until the season sort of starts to do the research, but I'm portraying that into what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis for work anyway. So I find a way to sort of meld the two together, you know? I'll tell you, there's no one more antsy in the AFI League two or three days before the season started than the play-by-play broadcasters because I'm in the same boat with Justin. The Pirates don't send out theirs till late, late either. They're later than everybody else. So that doesn't surprise me. I'm the person that's like texting our general <laughs> man, mean, our president. To try and put in perspective for people who don't know, who have never been in the Appalachian League before. One, you learn how to pronounce Appalachian. Uh, you Thankful. don't know that coming into it. I got yelled at a couple times the first season. But the other thing is, you even sometimes you don't even know. I mean, I remember being in Greenville that first season that they were partnered with the Reds, and I didn't even really like you're figuring out like who's who and sometimes the names don't match what you're given so like all right you're trying to figure out who's actually here who's not here who's on the roster and like you know especially for opening day like sometimes you're cutting it close to you know gates opening trying to figure out okay who's actually on our roster who's not who's here who's not and because a lot of times, sometimes stuff changes right before the season even begins with players getting signed, players not getting signed from draft classes and stuff like that. It's just a whole different animal compared to, uh, you know, full season where, okay, you know, these guys are breaking camp with you guys. And, you know, you've got a pretty solid idea who you're going to have. I'd say about a week before opening day. Yeah. Roster moves are always interesting because they might just get in that day and they might put them in as a pinch hitter in like the eighth inning and they're like oh that's so and so he doesn't have a number yet but that's him (laughs) i mean i most of the time i've been lucky i've had very good managers a lot of times it depends on which you know who communicates well you know i've had managers you know text me okay hey this is what the transaction is for today i sometimes i've had to chase them down hey you know is there anything going on today anything I need to know about, you know, sometimes you hear from the people in the organization. Sometimes you hear from your own GM or other people within your organization and stuff like that. But I remember there being one time, I think it was with the Smokies and like we had a guy who got like activated off like the suspension list or something like that. And we didn't know. And he came into the game and we're like, uh, we just used a pitcher that like, we have not sent this move into the league office. (laughs) Like, I don't know if this is legal. (laughs) We might get in trouble for this. But uh, it didn't have any impact on the outcome of the game and nothing happened because of it. But it's just a prime example of sometimes, like, those things happen because you don't have communication. I mean, I remember the first year also in the FSL when I was, you know, still an intern in 2014. Like, we were playing the Tampa Yankees, and they sent out the roster move after the game was over or, like, the next day or whatever, like, Oh yeah, this roster move was supposed to happen before the game started. Like we could have, I guess, technically raised a stink about it, but no one bothered to do that. I'll say the lower the level, it seems like the less uh, strict we have some rules. I know the 
what's the manager for the Elizabethan Twins, Ray Smith. Yeah. One time he turned in his lineup on a napkin, on a cocktail napkin. <laughs> that's how. That's With how no numbers, works. by the way, no numbers. There is nothing more frustrating as a broadcaster than working a game against the Elizabethan Twins and not. I mean, you don't know their lineup until at best an hour before first. Game. If they show up, at, if, at, if at best, if you're at home, that's if, that's if you're at their ballpark. Yeah. I mean, I remember games in Elizabethan, and you're calling games in what's basically a glorified treehouse. Yeah. Like the far right-hand corner where you have to lean out of the box to see first. And look down the line just to be able to see the right field foul pole, which I had to do for Mike Ciani's first professional home run, who's now one of the Reds' top prospects. And, like, I'm getting text messages from our manager 30 minutes before the game, like 10 minutes before I'm going on air. Do you have their lineup? Like, I'm texting our manager our in a professional game, the lineup, like 30 minutes before first pitch. Yeah. And, like, that's – no one said anything. No one, like – he's been the manager there since, like, the 80s. And the, prior to last season, the Twins and Elizabethan were run by the city's Parks and Recreation Department. No, that's not, like, something out of an NBC script. That's a real thing. They were run by the Elizabethan Parks and Rec Department. And like no, no one told them like to get with the times, and that like people need to know these things in advance. Yeah. Now it's they're interesting. Just, like it's not like you know uh, travel baseball when you're 14 and you just you know the other team doesn't know the lineup till you exchange it at home plate before the game. Like that's just not how it happens anymore. Yeah, I don't know who gets the lineup at Elizabethan or when they get it, but it's like. I think it's hidden in like a box. It's got like a lock on it until like five minutes before the game, and then they release it. But it's even worse most when they're the on the road. But the thing is, most of the time he doesn't put it out. No. And I remember, so I had to write when I was in Johnson City, and in Greenville for that matter. I was the one that wrote out the lineup boards because I was the one who always had the lineups first. And when you're playing Elizabeth, and I mean, I remember one game in Johnson City, the game they're like they show up like 25 minutes before first pitch. And, like, it's 20 minutes now before first pitch. They've been there for five minutes, and they still didn't have a lineup yet. I have to go – like, my pregame show starts in five minutes, and I don't have a lineup, and I've got to write it on this board, go up to my booth with, like, six other people and, like, get it in my, you know, my book and then, like, go on air in a span of, like, five minutes. And it's just, like – all right, that's what you got to do. Yeah, that's, that's the kind of realize how tough on air broadcasting is because they just like we talked about it on the last episode. Everyone just hears you talking, just thinks that you're just there sitting in a game waiting for stuff to happen. You're just describing it, telling stories and stuff like that. But you have so much more stuff going on. You've got reads that you have to do. You have certain things that you have to get in by a certain inning or a certain time of the game. Like it, it's just so much behind the work stuff that no one really sees. But what is the one thing as a minor league baseball broadcaster, would you say is the most challenging thing? Uh, honestly, the hours, most part. I mean, it consumes a lot of your time. I mean, trying to explain to people what life is like during baseball season. My life is literally get up, you go to work, come home and go to sleep. And a lot of times I'm either waking up and doing work or coming home from the ballpark and doing some work before I, go to sleep, whether it's preparing game notes for the next day or 
you know, getting the recap up on our website, uh, out to, you know, our media partners, whatever it is, you know, it's not just you're on air from, you know, seven until 10 o'clock at night. You're, you know, working diligently from, you know, basically the time you get up until the time you go down for bed that night, depending on, you know, how hard, you know, you want to, you know, push yourself and stuff like that. So definitely that's the biggest part, you know, during the season is just how much work goes into not just the broadcast, but all the other different facets of having a team work and run smoothly on a day-to-day basis, whether you're at home or on the road. I'll say minor league baseball has ruined my sleep schedule many a time. Uh, I got into a bad habit of coming back from games and preparing for the next game that night, and I was going to bed at like 3 o'clock. But I learned learned that time is still the same, whether you go to sleep three hours later, you wake up three hours earlier. So I figured out I can do something. Yeah, that's true. That was my philosophy when it came to college, you know, and I was studying for exams. Like if it was three in the morning and I'm still studying, like if I haven't learned it by now, I'm not going to learn it between three and six in the morning. Yeah. It's not going to, it's not going to stay in my head. There's no chance. I'd be better off going to sleep and remembering what I know now than trying to force myself to stay awake learn some more stuff, and then forget the rest of the other stuff that I learned when I was still coherent. Yeah, my problem was I had the Bob Carpenter scorebook. I still use it. You know how my setup my setup used to be very rudimentary, but you helped save me some time. I used to write everything I had for a game in that scorebook, and so, you know, batting averages would change like a point or two in one day maybe. <laughs> so, it, you know, it was a lot of writing and stuff, but then uh, this kind of gets us to our broadcast setup because – we're also the operators of our broadcast. We're the technicians, you know, and whenever uh, somebody heats up a, some chili downstairs at Boy Scott's Field and the power goes out and you lose the internet and you lose the broadcast, you got to get it back up and running, right, for, for the Pirates or if you're on the other side, if you're an unlucky road for road uh, broadcaster. There were many right a time in the Appalachian League where my broadcast was running based off of my phone, you know, It'd be Bowen Field and Bluefield, you know, Princeton, you know, sometimes the power goes out in your own ballpark and you're using, you know, your own, your phones, you know, wireless hotspot to stay connected and keep the broadcast going, you know, and you're, sometimes I've just said, screw it. And I'll, I'll pay the fee, whatever we got to, the show's got to go on. Let's talk about broadcast setup and how you kind of have your broadcast because Skyler and I talked about this a few shows ago, how broadcasting is something where you can do it a million different ways. And, you know, we might meet somebody that comes into a broadcast and he has a computer, but he uses it solely just to broadcast the game. He may have a scorebook. He may have the media guide and paper. He might not have anything else. There's other people who have four laptops, an iPad, and they've got everything going. They've got like this full workstation going. Where are you on that scale? I'm well. Thanks to you now, I've got the iPad Mini because you kind of led me down that path with using uh, OneNote, which has been a lifesaver. Yeah. So I try and I was actually turned on to that with OneNote uh, by uh, my former uh, boss and one of the guys who's been a huge mentor to me, Mick Gillespie of uh, the Tennessee Smokies. And I think he picked it up from Joe Block, who at the time was with the Brewers and now I believe is the voice of the Pittsburgh Pirates. 
And, you know, just using that instead of writing down every meticulous thing or, you know, highlighting every little thing in game notes and having to go back and try and find it while you're in the middle of broadcast instead using OneNote, whether it be on an iPad or a laptop, whatever it is, and, you know, writing all that stuff out there. It could be, you know, copying and pasting stories you want to talk about, uh, you know, little nuggets on the individual players, uh, something you want to talk about during the game, you know, in-game reads, stuff like that. I used it a lot for whether it be, you know, advertisements or just, you know, stuff that's going on with the team that I wanted to make sure we get on there coming in and out of breaks and stuff like that. That was huge for me in terms of setup. I'm different. I have never actually called a professional game while using a written uh, box score, uh, written, you know, score sheet. I've done it all using iScore on my iPad dating back to when I was still doing PA games in high school. I just started doing it. I was started getting more comfortable. It was easier to trans, you know, go back and forth between the two, at least for me mentally, uh, between calling the game and making sure I keep track of what's happening in the game at the same time and sort of stuck with that. So I've got, you know, usually a lot of electronics set up, but I try and keep it relatively compact with, you know, you know, my board set up into my computer. Uh, I end up, it ends up looking messier and more disorganized than it actually should be just because I'm tend to be a mess when it comes <laughs> to that yeah. stuff. There'll be papers all over the place by the end of the night, but it's usually like a small number of equip, a small number of pieces. It just looks a lot messier and tangled than it should. Yeah. And just hearing you say you do the scorebook on an iPad just gives me the heebie-jeebies. I tried to jump over yeah. to that for like one game, and I realized that you have to insert the other team's roster too. And that gets – that's a lot. That's a lot of work. But once you get it in, then you figure out the system. And if you're doing every game, which you were doing with Johnson City, it makes it easy for you because you also have like a backup. It's keeping your stats yeah. on there too. So, uh, and you can Yeah, try. that was huge. And also going back uh, in games also helped keep pitch counts – uh, things of that nature, knowing, you know, guys that may or may not be available left uh, in bullpens or on the bench for a game, you know, because of guys being used and stuff like that. So that, that always helped me. I felt like it was easier to go back and forth, you know, that way, as opposed to, you know, trying to like scroll book and read through, like trying to hurry, write something quickly. And then it looks like chicken scratch and, I'm trying to figure out five days later what in the world I meant yeah. on, on my box score. And that thing will automatically update too. And it exactly, and, I, yeah. and I think you showed me the post game. It'll actually give you like a written out box score, which I yeah. thought was kind of cool. It like shows, it looks like an original old style yeah, box score. Yeah, like it actually looks like you actually like filled it out yourself and stuff like that. You could print out if you yeah. wanted. Yeah, it looks like someone with good handwriting did it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Versus Legible. My, I am, my problem is I think, it's too much hands-on for me, so I have I have like four different colored pens that I have to have with me at all times, or I'll freak out. I have to have a red one, a green one, a light blue one, or a navy blue one, and a black. Now each night it could change how I use them, but it's <laughs> for some reason I like to have. But them. I need, but you need all four. I have to have all four, and I'll freak <laughs> out if I don't have all four. But I connect four. Got to yeah, have. For people that that don't know uh, what we do at IMG College, the way the setup looks for us, basically what we've got is we've got two monitors in front of us. We've got one up top that basically rolls the log, and that's where we can kind of control, you know, when we shoot the commercials and stuff like that, when we hit highlights. Uh, the bottom computer is kind of where we connect with everybody, and that's also where we use our 
you know, our pregame notes, if we have them on Google Docs or something like that, a lot of people that I've seen in, in several booths, they do it so many different ways, like we were talking about with the play-by-play guys. Like, you've got some guys that got seven different laptops and, and devices and stuff. I'm actually just the two-computer guy. Like, I, I got the two screens. I got the one that's up there firing the log, and I've got the one that has 42 tabs on the bottom on the bottom screen, and I just go through and flick through all the tabs. I, I don't like having everything spread out. So I think for me, the quickest thing is just to have everything in one central area because I get very distracted. So as soon so, as my eyes go somewhere else, I, I just mess up. So what I usually do is I have a Mac. So I'll have my board, you know, connected into my Mac, which goes to the stream that goes out. I'll have my iPad, which I'll use to score the game on iScore. And then because I have a Mac, I have different uh, screens open, like different desktops open. So like one will – I'll. I have like usually have three screens set up. One will have just the stream going straight out uh, to make sure it gets out to tune in and stuff like that. One that's, you know, running commercials. It's just the commercials. Another one that's like one note, you know, scores, you know, any other pertinent information if I needed to use the internet and stuff like that. Usually that's how it goes on a game by game basis. Yeah. Usually I, usually I'm going, I have my laptop and I run my broadcast through it, but I used to run my all my commercials out of iTunes. I just had a playlist because we didn't have a whole lot of well, that's a good idea paid stuff. So I just used it. I still do that, by the yeah. way, for most, for most of them. <laughs> I've I've been using that Zara radio. It's like a free thing, and it'll like you can like set an order just like we have at Learfield, to, uh, mm-hmm. and it'll automatically stop. And that's a lifesaver too, because if you don't pause it in time on iTunes, you're going to be starting the next commercial. Do that, and well, I have my uh ipad mini and i have it on one note for the most part tack i learned that this also came from mick gillespie uh, of the tennessee smokies was if you're going to do that you're going to use itunes to run your commercials during a game specific it's great for baseball because baseball you can separate your breaks out you know mid one and one mid two and two so on and so forth and so you can set them into different playlists on itunes oh. so when you have the bumper, you can have a bumper and the commercials. And once that's done, once that stops playing, you know, it stops. The playlist is over. Yeah, so I didn't think about that. Each commercial, each half inning by. Into a playlist. You know, uh, Good shit. By playlist. Yeah. I didn't think about that. You'd have like 50 playlists, but be pretty yeah, good. But it's, but it's easier to, to monitor because you name the playlist each half inning. So, yeah. okay. You know, we're going to the middle of the fourth inning. Click middle four. You're listening on the Daytona Tortugas radio network. Play and. You know, add goes. Yeah, that's that's a good tip. I didn't think about that one. That's why we have you on here. <laughs> <laughs> a little helpful hint. But yeah, I, you know, and I think it's just funny how there's so many different ways to go about things. And I think if you can find something, it's really just about how you can best get it out there. Because I mean, it's about telling the story of the game. Keep your score. I think you should. I think everybody should keep a scorebook as yeah. a broad, as a baseball broadcaster. Baseball, I've always done. I've never done it for basketball solely, or really any other sport, largely based on the fact that we've reached the point where live stats are so streamlined that they're pretty much right in tune with the game. And I mean, there'll be times where it's screwed up. Don't don't get me wrong. I've had I've been I've been there many a time, and you're waiting on those box score printouts. But it, it basketball and all those other baseball is the only sport where like you actually can have the time. Okay. You know, that pitch was a strike. You can mark strike, 
Okay, that was a double to the left. You can mark that before the next pitch happens. Basketball, if you're count, counting a missed shot, if they run a fast enough tempo, you miss three plays before you could write down what just happened or write down on your box score. Plus, no one teaches you how to, how to keep a basketball box score. You learn, like, the first time you go to a baseball game, you know, dad, I knew how to, whoever yeah. teaches you how to, you know, keep score if you get a program. You know, I knew how to do, keep a baseball score scorebook probably by the age of like seven or eight. Yeah. Oh yeah, that was like the first thing you learned to do at a game. Like you wanted to get a program because like you wanted to commemorate going to the game because it was still a big deal at the time. And a lot of times in baseball programs, they teach you how to keep score. Yeah. You now Mets and Yankees ones always had it when I went to games as a kid. But like no one teaches you how to keep basketball. <laughs> I remember there was times when I was probably. 10 to 11 maybe 12 years old and i'd just be sitting at home watching the pirates games on tv and i just get a sheet of notebook paper and i'd be taking the scorebook at home just for no reason i, I still have it somewhere where i've got like four hey, subject books full of, of just old hey, scorebooks i was very meticulous like that always with rosters and video games i always wanted yes the rosters and the video games to match whatever the actual roster was on that given day whether it be yeah. baseball or whatever and other sports so that was always a big thing for me when it came to that yeah and, and let's let's be straight here i mean if anybody that's in broadcasting in sports broadcasting i would say you're not a, broad, a true broadcaster if you never broadcasted your own games when you were a little kid i will remember i'll never forget <laughs> i mean i was made fun of at a time <laughs> i was i remember doing i was you know playing video games in the basement buddy was coming over probably like middle school-ish maybe early high school more closely to middle school and i'm playing and i'm you know calling the game in my basement whatever <laughs> and like my buddy's at the front door and he could hear me and like he was you know being like a 13 year old and just ridiculing me because he could hear me doing that or whatever <laughs> and uh it actually all rolls and actually the first i'll tell this it's fitting you now with all the last dance stuff going on the first time anyone actually ever heard me uh broadcasting was not when i was doing pa in high school it was actually in kindergarten and i was a huge michael jordan fan because of space jam and you know basketball believe it or not was the first sport i fell in love with before baseball and i was like in i went to the bathroom as five-year-old kids do and wash the hand you know wash your hands and shooting you know paper balls into the into the garbage basket screaming like the PA announcer Michael Jordan and like the tea after like five minutes a teacher came in and was like are you gonna like come back out or like what <laughs> people still remember that like in high school years later yeah it's actually a really good tool I mean if you think about yeah. it for people that are wanting to learn how to broadcast that just won't practice I mean really you could sit there, turn a video game on, and not even play it, and just you know go through yeah. the the normal. I, I guess it wouldn't be normal because you don't have breaks and stuff, but you could act like you're setting it to break and stuff. It's yeah, just well, really kind of a cool one of the idea. big things though for for people to learn if you are young and are doing that as a kid. This was this was an issue for me when I first started broadcasting, and you know it it was a tough habit to break, and luckily I've been able to slowly get out of it. Is because of calling games to the video games i was so used to because video games are so much quicker it's not as deliberate yeah. as everything else you know especially at that time there were fewer 
breaks, you know, in between, you know, from one play to the next, like as soon as like the shot was over, it was right into the next at bat and stuff like that. So I was doing, you know, like I, I was so sped up when I first started, I had to learn to slow down. Yeah. I'll tell you when you first start broadcasting, and you hit that first pregame show and you're doing the intro and you sound like an auctioneer because you're like so amped up because you know that first job you're like so excited regardless justin i maybe you know first game with daytona you were probably so amped up for a you know to you know because you do have that new nerve because you're moving to a new place you got a whole new different audience you hope everybody likes you it it does kind of speed you up i i know going back and listening to Back in 2017, listening to myself do a game from Virginia High School, and I never want to get back and listen to the old one. That (laughs) pregame show, (laughs) don't do it. No, there are definitely moments when you go back and listen, sort of cringe a little bit. But I mean, I think it's part of all you know the experience. You got to grow. Yeah, the whole point is you know you're supposed to get better. Not you're supposed to get better as time goes on. You're supposed to learn uh, from your mistakes and stuff like that. And it's tough. I mean, I sometimes find myself having you know, hard time getting myself to go back in and listen to, you know, even recent tape, let alone uh, old tapes, just, you know, because I know I can be so critical uh, on myself or I nitpick every little thing that uh, I did wrong or didn't do wrong and stuff like that. So, I mean, yeah, especially at the beginning, you know, you get those nerves when you're, when you're in a new location, but uh, I've been lucky. I've been around a lot of really good people. It made me feel really comfortable. Uh, and stuff like that. So I've never really worried going into that first game, you know, except for maybe like that first time when I was in Brevard, the first time I, you know, doing a professional game, the first time, you know, you know, you were getting a check for it. There was definitely some nerves. And there's still a little nerves, you know, before every game. I think that's, you know, normal. You know, you know, you get you psych yourself up and you, know, you want to do a good job and you want to do service to the players, the coaches, you know, parents fans, whoever's listening or watching wherever you are. And, you know, so I think, you know, sometimes it's, it's more prevalent than others, but, you know, I, you still get those butterflies every now and then, whether it's a big game or just a regular game. I kind of equivalent, I kind of have the equivalent for broadcasting. I use it kind of whenever I come home and I think about that night's broadcast or on the way home. It's, it feels a lot like leaving a golf course. Because you never leave the golf course and you're like, wow, I played so great. And, you know, you're never fully – like, I don't know if, if – I, I might be the only person, but when I leave the broadcast, I'm, I'm thinking about, like, everything that happened in the game. I'm thinking about yes. things I said going into break. Because, you know, you kind of get caught in the rhythm of the game. And maybe yeah. you're a little bit too repetitive on some fronts. You maybe Every time you went out of went to a break or came back from a break, you're like, welcome back. I'm like, okay, we could have done something different there, Dylan. But <laughs> – you, you know, you, you leave the ballpark. If, it's the same feeling when you're taking off your golf shoes and you're getting in the car. You're like, "There's a I could have chipped better today. I drove the ball really good today. You know, there's always something that you could have done a little bit better. And I think that's something about this business that you're kind of grading yourself. Like, people will come up to you and be like, you had a great broadcast the other night. Man, I loved it. And you're just thinking, like, I used I really? said this, yeah, <laughs> it, and it, like, it, it, it is very interesting because I mean I remember especially when I, I was first starting as a professional, having phone calls with my parents and being so self-critical coming home from games, you know I kept saying this I, you know fumbled over this word or you know sped up and I, I didn't like my call on this home run or you know I you know I, I didn't do this strikeout you know service or whatever. 
and they're not like like what are you talking about like there's certain things when you you do it so much as a broadcaster like you'll pick up on that if you're not in broadcasting on a daily basis other regular people just don't or regular fans i should say just don't necessarily pick up on those little things that might have gone wrong my favorite was a buddy of mine who used to work in tv news and is now doing something else with his life but like he was great with camera he worked as a you know a, a videographer for a local news station in in new york he's a pittsburgh guy and like he would always call out anytime uh, a camera on tv like espn mlb network didn't matter if it wasn't color balanced right like he would know right know right away and now every time i watch a game i'm like yep that that's too blue i noticed right away <laughs> regular fan would have no idea i was like no that, that shot's not right it's crazy how much that you you notice when you do it before like because before i actually got into broadcasting I, I was the same way i just listened to the game if someone stumbled over something i never even really paid attention to it and then once i got to img i'm like reviewing my day like dylan said and i go home and i always have my, you know the phone call with my mom on the way back i'm like man i felt like i stumbled so much today or i did so much of this and she's like i didn't even notice any of that and it's just it's so crazy how you get two different perspectives but it kind of goes like to to in reference to baseball it's kind of like a pitcher on the mound like you're gonna go with what's comfortable you're not just gonna keep feeding you know you know curveballs in the dirt if you don't feel comfortable on them with an o2 pitch if you feel like you can get a, a blow, blow a, a high heater bind you're going to do that so you're in broadcasting it's kind of the same thing you you got to go to what you're comfortable with and just kind of baby step your way into stuff that you know you're not so used to to where you can expand you know what you do as a, as a broadcaster absolutely I, I think that's a pretty good analogy and i think there's a fine line between you know something like oh why did i do that so much and then you know, eventually you got to realize that you're the broadcaster and if yeah. If you go back and listen to it and it really isn't that bad, that it really wasn't that bad. Like what you're hearing on the radio versus how critical you are sometimes is a little different. You know, sometimes you feel like you've made a big mistake, but in reality, it wasn't that big of a mistake. And, you know, I think it comes down to you listen to other broadcasters, right? And you want to emulate them. But in, in the end of it, you're not going to be a broadcaster because you sound more like them. It's got to be, yeah. you got to find I, your I, own voice. You know, I sort of, you know, compare it to like, you know, you listen to an athlete talk about, you know, watching guys that they enjoyed, especially during all this stuff about Michael Jordan, the last dance over the last couple of weeks. You know, you hear guys, you know, Kobe Bryant, the big story was him going and watching all the Jordan tapes and, you know, watching meticulously and learning you know, watching all the moves he did and learning and adding that to his game. I think there is a comparable, you know, to broadcasters listening to one another and listening to how somebody does something like, okay, yeah, that's, you know, I like that. I want to add that to, to my repertoire and it's things of that nature. I like, you know, this is what they're doing. You know, I want to try and utilize that as well without, you know, obviously cop, you know, just straight lifting, copywriting it. And stuff, or, uh, you know, you know, just just straight copying them and stuff like that. But like, there's definitely some of that too, where you're just trying to like see what other people are doing. You're like, okay, I like that, and incorporate it, and try and make yourself better. I think, I think the biggest thing is like whenever 
you do broadcast. You've got to find your own voice, like Dylan said. And even like you said, Justin, you, you can take bits and pieces. It's a copycat world. I mean, you're going to be able to take, you know, different things that people do and, and apply them to what you do as a broadcaster, whatever you do in life. But as fans, they want to hear often what makes them like you as a broadcaster is authenticity. So if you can have your own voice, but still have other, you know, things that you take from other people, that's what's really going to get you, you know, to become a favorite with the fan base that, that you're broadcasting to. Absolutely. And I think the biggest thing, one thing I always try and do is just try and make it as personable as possible. You know, no one wants to get talked down to, no one wants to, you know, be lectured and stuff like that. You want to give people information that, you know, is important. You want to keep them updated. You know, your job is to inform, but also entertain, you know, you, you know, sometimes it's good to, you know, throw in a, you know, goofy question in an interview to, you know, keep a player, you know, amused and not dread getting interviewed on a daily basis, and, you know, throw in a story that's a little, you know, off tilt a little bit, you know, the game is getting out of, uh, getting out of hand and, you know, it's 15 to three in the seventh inning and you don't want to be there and fans are tuning off, you know, one by one because the game's over and you're trying to keep people entertained and stuff like that. So there's, there's, a lot of different ways definitely to go about doing that. I'll say baseball is built for that a little more than anything because yeah. if you just call the action, I think that's the number one thing that people want from you can get into a whole lot of other things, backstories, and you can get too statistical. I, I, I had a absolutely, I think everybody has that moment because you get to the you get to minor league baseball out of doing high school games and some of these smaller colleges, you're not getting that much statistical help when you get to minor leagues you're getting every stat i can look up when a guy what a guy's hitting versus left-handed pitching when he's at home and the sun is down you know nobody needs that kind of information but you kind of are open up to this world and you're like oh man i can get some really cool stats but i think people like part of the stuff that was one of the biggest things that was an issue in the appy league was not so much getting stats it was trying to find any sort of biographical information just to get, you know, sometimes you need a, a jumping point, you need, you need a jumping off point in talking to some of these guys. I mean, you could throw a random innocuous question, like got any siblings? You know, like they answer that question enough, you know, you got a favorite team. They, they've done that enough. You know, I like trying to find, you know, like articles that have been written about them in the past. And that was very tough to do for a lot of guys, especially, in the Appy League, where you got a you know a lot of young, you know, you know Dominican, Latin, you know, you know any guys from you know signed out of Latin America, and sort of a lot of times in the Appy League, undrafted and low-level draft picks coming from small schools that just you know don't have full SID departments like Ole Miss or Penn State or you know any of these other major schools, and you're trying to really dig for information just to really get an idea of who they are so you can accurately, you know, depict them to the people listening. I don't know. That, that was the biggest thing, especially in the Appy League. Yeah, those backstories because you don't get those, you know. And if you get a guy who I'm sure at your level now, he's been written about a little bit at the lower levels to the point where you have a little bit more of a background on him because I know when we draft a college guy – when Pittsburgh would draft a college guy and send them to Bristol, it made it so much easier because you just get on their website. At the very least, you could see what they hit. Yeah. 
and or what their ERA was their final year. And usually, if they came from a smaller school, they put up some pretty darn good numbers, and to to stand out from a smaller school. Yeah, no, but that was definitely one of those things where I had to learn to 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 limit the numbers some, and you know, focus on some of the other things because, you know, stats can be you know overdone, and you know, you, there's been times where you're looking. You know, it's not even just games on radio. You're watching a game on TV and they throw up some stat and it's like, why did you like, why is that relevant? Yeah. Why, why is this part of the, why is this part of the conversation? Like, yeah, it's interesting, but it's not, you know, necessarily prevalent and yeah. things like that. So it, it's a lot of, you know, part of broadcasting is trial and error and learning what, you know, works and what doesn't work. And sometimes, you know, that's the beauty of being a baseball broadcaster is you, you mean, even in the Appy League, you're still calling 60 games in a three, 60 plus games in a three month span. So you, you know, you, if you screw up one day, guess what? It's just like a baseball player. You know, you have an 0 for 4 day at the ballpark. Guess what? Coming back the next day and you get to do it again and try again. So, you know, a lot of it's trial and error. And, you know, especially when you're young and figuring out, and even still to this day, I mean, there are some days where I've gone overboard with stats still. And, you know, you got to continue to learn and grow and figure out what works and what doesn't. That's going to wrap up part one of our sit-down with Justin Rock, the play-by-play voice of the Daytona Tortugas here on the Hutton and Callahan Show. Be sure to check back next week. We'll talk more broadcasting with him, plus The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary. Don't miss it on the Hutton and Callahan Show. 